uh, Josh Rowe. Thanks for joining us today on Real Insight. Um, your resume is so long that I'm not even going to bother to uh, to explain what it is that you're doing. I'm going to pass it over to you to frame that up. Um, thanks for being here. Josh, give us a snapshot as to who you are. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. It's um, uh, exciting to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Mm. It's um, uh, It's been an interesting and long career. I've had, I suppose I'd sum it up by saying I've been uh, lucky enough to have worked at the intersection of uh, this thing called uh, the internet very very early on in my career uh, and the innovation that stemmed from it. So uh, very early on, that was kind of back in the, the mid to late 90s, that was you know, building out really interesting websites and, and other things like that and e-commerce sites mm-hmm. uh, and uh, right through to quite recently working on things around generative AI. But uh, in between, I've managed to work for some of the largest corporations in Australia, um, ANZ Bank, Medibank, Australia Post, but also um, I've started up a few of my own uh, startup businesses. Uh, yeah, and that's definitely something that I want to have a chat about, um, probably to kick it off, because um, you've you've been involved in a bunch of startups, but then you're also actively invested in a bunch of startups. Um, what is a good startup? What does a good startup business look like, and uh, and what sort of stuff do you look for? Yeah, so it's. Um, uh, if I knew the answer to that, I'd probably be, um, you know, uh, you know, be very well off. Elon uh, Musk. Elon Musk. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be that man, but um, <laughs> but certainly I'd be well off. Um, it's uh, you know, venture capital investing, uh, even at the kind of the size I do it at, is 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 a risk. Mm. You know, is something that you um, you go into knowing full well that not every startup's going to succeed. And um, you know, when I look at particular potential investments that I take. Uh, I look at not only the the idea, but I look at who the people are who are behind it, mm. um, and their vision behind what they're trying to succeed, and then and also some you know, early traction or, or demonstration that they're trying to uh, get some some runs on the board with whatever they're trying to build out. Is is it a people thing more than a tech thing? Particularly if it's a if it's a tech startup, is it is it about the people? People is really important. Yeah, like the. Um, uh, the number of times I've seen, um, and this is both as a founder of myself, but also as an investor, that I've seen um, uh, the the connection between investors and startup founders come together at in-person events. Mm. Um, that yeah, you know, that's that's where the nexus seems to happen because it's that kind of establishment of that. You know, I, I understand what you're on about. I understand that you not only got something which is functional and great because there's potential customers who will buy this thing and, and pay for it and mm. but also that, you know, you've got the drive to execute it and make it happen and I can see that your – I can see the energy, I can see your um, tenacity, I can see all the things that live behind you that are more than just, you know, perhaps your your resume, perhaps your what you've worked on in the past, whether you're a, um, you know, solo – a solopreneur or a startup founder or even a you know, previous corporate entrepreneur type person, but it's that, that ability to, to connect between the, the founder and, and the investor to say, hey, I've got what it takes. Yeah, because being a tech guy myself, like I've always toyed with the idea of being involved in a startup or, you know, it, it's a bit romantic, I think, to think about, you know, what it's like to build something from the ground up. Um, but at the same token, my brain can't come to terms with what you need to know and, and, and what the size of that risk is. You know, from my point of view, I'm thinking, well, what happens if it all goes wrong? What happens if you create a startup or invest in a startup and it doesn't work? 
do you just pack it up and walk away? Is that is is that what happens? Have you ever been involved in a situation where it hasn't worked? Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, not every startup I've been involved in has been kind of a glowing success story. There's been ones where, you know, I've um, either invested my own time, my own money, and it's either um, in some some cases it's either died with a very clear death, uh, you know, and, and you know, and a flat line. In other cases, it just kind of ambles along, mm. which and they're the, they're the ones where you kind of go, you know, what's going on there, and you know, sometimes. Um, you know, uh, founders are like, can we have some more money to tip in for a follow-on round or do this or do that? And it's that, well, what do we do next? But um, if I reflect on my own experience, um, my my very first foray to, you know, getting involved in, in a startup was actually back when I was at university. Mm. And so I actually started my, my very first business. Uh, I was, you know, studying, I wasn't even studying, I think I was studying civil engineering discovered this thing called the internet um, and when I say discovered, I didn't invent it. I just, I, <laughs> just I, 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 I stumbled onto the internet <laughs> yep. um, back back when there was literally 30 million people globally using the internet and so um, I thought this is really cool and I literally started selling website pages and um, e-commerce sites for people in Australia mm. uh, to say, hey, get on, get online and it was just while I was studying. So for me it was effectively it was a side hustle but it was my first business and I was taking paying customers. Yeah. And uh, that was amazing because it would really taught me how to understand the customer in a market where there wasn't a real good understanding of the product, which was this thing called online. No one understood it. No one got it. And I remember like getting nostalgic. I go back to my first foray into um, not the internet but, but being connected online and it's 1986 for me and I've got a Commodore 64 and I watched – weird science and I was introduced to the modem like and, and back then I was like well, what do you do with the modem so mum bought me a modem from Maxwell's in Abbotsford which was like the place to go for computer stuff at the time um, and I used to connect to bulletin boards um, and there was one that I used to connect to that was called the island um, BBS and it was literally just people posting stuff and it was not in real time and it was there and I didn't really get it um, but when I go back and I think if I'd been smart enough to think of, you know, creating a startup or something for the internet that was coming um, because the bulletin board connectivity was like internet, well, you know, that point was, zero that, five. That was social media. Yeah. Back then. I mean, there was, I mean, I was, I was on kind of BBS's similar kind of time too. And um, uh, for me, it was Melbourne PC user group type thing and mm. same kind of thing, dial in, uh, connect. Um, it, it was kind of revolved around not just messaging, but downloading files and getting the latest, you know, free uh, software free, freemium, can't remember the name, shareware and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yep. It was all about, yeah, software exchange. So it was the movement from um, swapping um, floppy disks uh, to then moving to online exchange of software. Mm. That was the, that was back then, that was the, it was the, you know, it was the using, you know, um, online BBS as a way of swapping files. Yeah. So freaky stuff. I remember then my first internet experience because um, I didn't have the internet at home until I was probably... 20, um, I didn't necessarily come from a very wealthy home, so, so that was a luxury. Um, but I remember going to an internet cafe in Greensboro, and this is probably 1996 now. Um, it cost me $15, I think, for 10 minutes internet use, and we did nothing because we didn't know what to do. Like it was the, we were just I was an X-Files fan. We are looking at X-Files websites and things like that. But, you know, when did it occur to you that the internet – 
can be so much more than just like what it was for me. I didn't have that vision into this is going to be something that, you know, that is going to change lives and, and you can build ecosystems in this. When did that happen for you? Uh, 1992. Yep. The Barcelona Olympics. Right. So my, my father at this stage was a uh, – held a uh, staff job at RMIT University and um, uh, luckily enough what that came with was a, a, a modem connection into RMIT's internet uh, yeah, wow. connectivity. So basically, you know, for me, my internet cafe was at home, which was amazing. And um, uh, back then, I don't know if you remember, but um, sports telecasts were delayed. Yeah. So, you know, unless you knew a phone number of someone over in the other country, there was, you know, there was no real way for you to find out the live, you know, what was happening until the newspapers came out the next day. Mm. And so for me, suddenly I was connected through this thing called the internet. It was a green screen. Like I was browsing the internet using this thing called Lynx. A web, it's a web oh, browser, yeah. and I was on there, and I was I was able to go through and find out that this that our you know this swimmer Kieran Perkins had, had absolutely smashed the fifteen hundred world record and and won one gold, mm. and so um, and I was able to find that out before anyone else, and I'm just like, and it was that point where I've gone. This is amazing. Yeah. Like wow. this is a fundamental fundamental breakthrough technology. And um, you know, um, I've only had that happen to me twice in my career career um that time. And now with this latest round of technology, generative AI. With the I'm, AI stuff. Yeah, but that's the but that was nineteen ninety two was that fundamental point where I've gone, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, and that didn't happen to me until significantly later. And by the time that was happening, I was an, a musician and I was just like out you know, doing that sort of stuff and the internet was something I revisited much later and realised I'm a bit late to the party. Um, but the people that were there, you know, and, and jumped on early, they really made a good success story out of that. Um, another success story from your history, Realaz. Um, tell us about Realaz, how that came about and where that ended up. I would say one thing just on your last comment, I don't think anyone's ever too late to anything. Oh, I'm very judgmental of myself. So yeah. that's probably so, why. So, so I would say you, you're never too late to any opportunity and sometimes some of the biggest success stories stories are sometimes the fast followers mm. who actually jump on and they learn from something that's already been done by someone else and do it better. We sort of saw that with the dot-com bubble, right, and then out of that crash, you know, the emergence of things like Facebook and Google and, yeah, so, so do it better, yeah, is the secret. Um, Realize, tell us about Realize. Yeah, so Realize was a really interesting uh Opportunity for me. I'd uh, I'd just finished up working with Medibank, mm -hmm. um, doing a really interesting role there, um, heading up their uh, digital team there, uh, doing some really exciting stuff from an enterprise perspective, and um, and then an opportunity came up. I was uh, introduced to some founders, uh, some or co-founders of this business who had a kind of a, a, a nub of an idea, uh, and um, the idea was we think we can match up buyers and sellers in the real estate markets place in Australia. And the original idea was to kind of create a preferences type app website where you kind of like, you know, buyers like, oh, here's the things I want and sellers kind of present them together. Now what came became very obvious was when I, when I joined the business was um, it wasn't just that which, which was what um, potential customers wanted. There was, mm. there was a little kind of feature that they'd been – the, the existing group of people have been kind of running along the side but hadn't given much attention attention to, which was the prediction of what properties would sell for. Right. Um, and uh, I suppose to, without making this too much of a long story, 
they'd um, the, the founders or the original founders of this business had partnered with RMIT University, which is where I did my undergrad computer science degree, um, and had basically started developing an algorithm using artificial intelligence machine learning to predict what properties would sell for. Mm. Um, and it was incredibly accurate, like within 5% of what properties sold for right across Australia, regardless of whether it was a private sale or auction. Yeah. Um, and this was a stage, you know, back in, this is 2014 we're talking about, when underquoting was rife, especially mm. in auctions, where, you know, the, the price that was quoted pre-auction and the, what they sold for would be sometimes 10, 15, 20% difference. Yeah. And so people were rocking up to these auctions, buyers, and they'd be just frustrated mm. and they just hated it. And so, um, and there was no rules, regulations. Yeah, back then it was open slather. It was right? open slather. Yeah. So, um, and so for me, that was, it was one of, the, again, one of those moments where I've, I saw the need. I saw the, I saw a market which was all driven by, um, you know, the main real estate websites. And even today I'd say this, uh, are mostly focused on the people who pay them. Mm. The people who pay them are the real estate agents and the people who sell houses. People who buy houses don't pay those real estate portals. Yeah. And so they're, they're kind of, they're, they're the third customer. They're not the first yeah. or the second customer. Yeah. Um, and so there was a real opportunity to represent home buyers, hence Real As was born. And I guess we can see that now, like that, whatever that technology started off as, but now it's sort of incorporated in any major real estate website, right, where I can put in the address of my property and, you know, here's what we're valuing the property at based on so-and-so data. Um, and that's updated, I think, sometimes every two weeks or, or monthly and the value of your property changes. That would have been the same sort of stuff that, that was going on back then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so what? What? Um, uh, one of the first things we, you know, that I did when we launched Realize was we, we turned around uh, this whole idea of um, keeping prices secret because back then it wasn't necessary that the, the real estate agent had to disclose any kind of formal quotation. Um, the rules have since changed then. Um, we actually, I played a, a role in, legis- you know, seeing that there would be um, uh, legal and regulation changes in Victoria, in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but what we saw was that um, um, you know we saw we saw better transparency of prices to um, to the public. Yeah. And 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 I we did this in a few different ways. So first, apart from just having a, right every single property that's on the market, here's a prediction. We started doing leaderboards. So, oh, okay. so every, every single week we'd go okay. Who's the best? Who's actually the best real estate agents? And so we'd actually, you know, go out there and we'd publish media releases. They'd get pub- these would get published in the financial review. The 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 TV news would pick it up. Mm. Um, uh, radio programs, John Fain here in Victoria, you name it. Everyone would pick it up, and they love this. People, I mean, people love talking about property. Real estate agents would have loved it too, because they're not the most egotistical people in the world. Uh, I was going <laughs> to say there was there was one real estate agent in particular here in Melbourne who literally got the. In fact, one here in Melbourne, one in Sydney too, and they both both got the. Um, they're the kind of them being the number one in both Melbourne and Sydney for accurate, mm. um, you know, them being as accurate as they can in providing an estimation of what the property's going to sell for pre-auction. Um, and they put it, they published it. They yeah. republished it as their own thing. One of them put it up on their front screen of their actual physical <laughs> physical store. And I'm like, that is awesome. Whereas the reverse was we had some where they threatened us and they said you were – you know, they actually, oh, because you're telling the truth. <laughs> well, here's the thing: you can't. Well, they said we're being defamatory for calling them out for being inaccurate, and we're like, well, that's factual. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, 
it wasn't a good idea them threatening making that threat because we just passed it straight back to the um, newspapers and the newspapers. <laughs> the newspapers, it was even more stories and they're like, oh, who, who sent that legal threat? You're an idiot. Yeah. And so it, it – and, and what this meant for us as an organisation was we um, – uh, as a startup is we got this tremendous amount of um, publicity mm-hmm. and by the end of it, you know, there was over 100 different mainstream media articles and um, if, if I was to give any advice to anyone who's – Running a startup, um, you're getting a startup going. Um, it's about getting um, your product, your service, your offering, not just in front of um, you know, potential customers, but also get in front of the people where they are. Your potential customers uh, live and, and talk. So, and for real estate, that was mainstream media. Yeah, um, and it was tremendously hard, you know, buying that kind of media, especially when you're kind of going up against, say, realestate.com.au and domain.com.au mm. was very hard. So we just went straight in there and we, we hit the you know, the main you know, TV channels, radio channels, and just were there as an advocate for buyers. Mm. Um, advice for startups, because you just mentioned a point that sort of triggered a thought in my mind. Um, when you're creating a startup, what is the importance of how things happen in sequence? And, and by that, what I mean is there's obviously an idea. Um, when do you start giving birth to the idea and using the idea to find, you know, other employees and investors and things before you need to actually say, well, now here's the product. Um, can you get investors based on an idea and a, and, and a conceptual idea or do you need to actually start to have business plan and product in order to, to start finding your first round investors? Um, the answer is both. You can do both. I mean, it's up to how much you want to do yourself, uh, for how much um, investment you need, depending on the idea, I suppose. But I suppose as much time as you can bootstrap it, i.e. pay for it yourself and get things going, is a good idea. Um, what what I'd say also is you need to also think about whether there's any, say, time-to-market risks, like if you want to get there faster than someone else. So mm. if I take Real as, as an example, we had a real time-to-market um, thing where, you know, I joined the business in... Uh, April 2014, our goal was to have it in market by spring that year because that's um, is in the app, the website, and that was really important because we just needed to uh, be there for, you know, the, the, the rush of spring sales. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the, you know, time to market was important. And so from my point of view, um, having uh, investors on board was really important because, you know, I had the necessary capital to have, you know, a software development team um, and then, you know, I engaged a, you know, a, a nimble PR firm um, who, who were able to help us and go to market and then be able to get it out there and be able to reach our target customers. Awesome. Um, still scary for me and probably something I won't do, but um, awesome advice for anyone that's interested. I would like to flip the topic to what it is that we're really here to talk about today and that is um, what is fast becoming uh, a business for you and a passion for me and that is um, AI and what a buzzword at the moment. What I really want to try and do um, is first frame the context of AI so that people know what we're talking about because the one thing I'm finding with the industry at the moment is AI is like, as far as I know, there's still no AI, right? Like we're, we're talking about an emergence of. Um, what's the difference between a really intelligent, effective algorithm and AI and how do we define where we are in that timeline currently? Well, I suppose the first thing to call out is um, AI is definitely not a new concept. It's been around since the 1950s, 60s, um, the Turing test, mm. if everyone wants to Google it up and see the kind of the early development of what you know, artificial intelligence first was. 
Um, and even this current form of what AI is, everyone talks about generative AI, AI, you know, which produces these you know, texts and images and other things. Um, that's you know, that's even something that's been in development over many years. In fact, the last kind of um, you know decade or so, that's been kind of that work has been going. It's only kind of hit a point now where it's become mainstream, where people have gone, oh, this is actually useful. Yeah. And so uh, AI is absolutely something that has been in use for a long time. And in fact, you know, if I think about all the different other words that AI has been used to to describe what AI has done, there's, there's been lots of people who've worked in, say, the data world with maybe, you know, from who, you know particularly enterprise people who work with data warehouses and intelligent-based systems to kind of work out and do data analytics. Um, that kind of work has led to, you know, where we are now about having intelligent ways to... Um, to, I suppose, um, uh, you know, I suppose do regression models and, 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 and predict and, gi- and give a sense of um, uh, use effectively mathematics mm. and, and computer operations to work out what the next li- most likely thing is going to be. Um, if I take Realize as a, as a, as a great example, Realize was and, and is an AI al- algorithm mm. that predicts the most likely um, uh, number a property will sell for. Yeah, that's it. Now the the, the secret sauce behind that is something that's uses a combination of different factors and, and a whole bunch of things to to come up with that. But but what that does is it's it's able to do something that is valuable for that uh, the, the the home buyer. And so when people think about generative AI and go, oh, how the hell does that work? Um, you know, things like generative AI. When we apply it to say text, mm. you know, something like OpenAI, which runs ChatGPT, yeah. is trained, and the word "trained" just means learns. Like you know, sucks in a whole lot of data from, you know, effectively the internet, um, and then it just does a really good job of predicting what's the next word going to be. Mm. So when you ask it a question, it goes, oh, "I think the next word is going to be." And it's a predictor. It's like a, it's a it's a generator of the next word. Yeah, it's not inherently intelligent, is it? It it's like it appears as intelligence, but all it's doing is taking information that already exists and and putting it into another another structure. Yeah, and in fact, um, you know, there's certainly some limitations when it comes to some of these uh, you know kind of new tools, which uh, over time um, uh, should be improved. But um, because they're trained on you know data which is available on the internet. The same biases which yeah. exist in both text and image and the like, and just the human culture exists right? there. So, uh, a real example uh, was that the other day, um, a a lady who was some kind of there was you know had a um, uh, Asian appearance asked uh, one of these kind of avatar uh, AI avatar websites, "Can you improve touch up my photo?" Mm-hmm. And the touch up turned her into a Caucasian person, yeah. right. and it's just like. Oh my goodness! And yeah. I, I'm like, that's just like, how inappropriate is that? Like, yeah. it's just not like, uh, you, you know, that was not asked for. Mm. <laughs> um, and same goes for anything written in text. And you know, um, there's a famous uh, case where there was a, a person, a lawyer in the US, who decided to use ChatGPT to write up their case for a court. Now they didn't go and check what ChatGPT wrote mm. and they submitted it into court and sure enough the um, uh, the case law that it had referred to was just made up. Yeah. Now this is an, a known thing not just with ChatGPT but many kind of AI models uh, called hallucination where if it doesn't know it just kind of goes and makes it up. Now it's completely very easy if you know how 
to, to basically get to basically put a command in or a prompt to say to these AI models, don't make things up. Or in fact, even ask a follow-up question going, how much of that is correct? Or can you just review yeah, you your own work? the references or something. Yeah, yeah. cite the references, mm. review your own work. Does, does that provide all the right perspectives? And so you can kind of go back and go, you know, just like you would when, say, you know, if you imagine you were giving some work to a, someone else in, in the business, you, mm. you were checking their work. You don't, you shouldn't just take the work done by... Oh, it's a peer-reviewed. Uh, yeah. yeah, you need to peer-review it. And sometimes... In fact, not sometimes. I would suggest all the time, unless you have domain knowledge in the work you're asking to be done, you shouldn't trust it. I think mm. you should should also always get it to be tested and checked by someone, someone or someone else, whether it's another AI model or another or human, uh, to say is this right? Yeah, someone that's familiar with with that space yep. in particular. Um, businesses are rushing to adopt AI in multiple different fashions. We use a little bit of it here. Um, the stuff that, that makes obvious sense to me is the use of chat GPT just to cut down on, you know, the laborious typing of, of monotonous text, um, sometimes using things like mid-journey to generate conceptual images and things for clients. Where are the places that businesses can get good yield on AI tools now? Um, and, and then where are the things that are probably not worth going to just yet? So you're spot on, Mike, with um, administrative related tasks is you just jump straight in and, and what I'd encourage most people to do is put the tools in the hands of the people who are already doing the work. Mm. Just like I, before I said where it's important to get people who have the domain expertise to, to, to check things, it's the people who are in those administrative tasks who you can actually help them be more efficient, do more work by getting them these tools because they can be the ones checking to go, is, is it delivering me the right answer? Mm. If, you, if you think that, say, ChatGPT and these other tools are, are a way of, you know, removing the requirement for needing those kind of admin type tasks being done and you can just kind of hand up to someone else in your business, then you're likely to miss the quality check. Yeah. So, so the, the, the really, the, I suppose the important message there is it can in, enhance the productivity, the, the throughput of people who are already doing this kind of work. Mm. Um, the other one is um, uh, right across different industries, there's a great opportunity to, um, to broaden perspectives and ask more questions around things and, you know, really I'd be using these kind of generative AI tools as a way of going, but what if, you know, if I had someone else who could just ask me a few more questions just to check my thinking, Mm -hmm. have I considered all the aspects of this? Um, So, you know, from my perspective, you know, my my current role in working in, you know, um, product management in the consulting industry, um, I really look at, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking at the, are we solving clients' problems? Mm. So I, I constantly am always thinking, right, um, and, you know, whether it's at a, a high level going, is the business problem considered, have we considered all the elements of the business problem, are all the, the plans and the details there from a, a macro point of view, right down to a right, okay, on to an execution point of view, what does my, you know, product manager, engineers and, and others need to know to execute on the work? Um, how do we describe it? How do we make sure it's tested and executed really well? How do we make sure that the client has a really good way of delivering on this so it's operational? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can you can basically ask this stuff and say, how do we? What are all the checks and balances we need to have? And you know, I, I'd even encourage people to even look at some of these AI models of almost checking existing work you've already got. You might have say um, policies. Yeah. Yeah. Take a policy of. Um, uh, uh, you might have a OHS policy or a, or something, and you might go, "Oh, geez, is this is this correct?" And you might just say, um, "This is our OHS policy." Um, say ChatGPT, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a business. 
based in Melbourne, Victoria, and um, we need to make sure that there's this new law that's come out or new requirements, Fair Work Act, and we know that ChatGPT only goes to 2021, so you tell it, you go, right, here's the new law, and whether you point it to a URL or paste in the content, you go, here it is here. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us whether we're up, to, we're up to speed and just, and you know, ChatGPT will go... Well, firstly, when I'm not a lawyer, like it's good. Yeah. It's got some good controls there. It's actually yeah. really good. I'm not a lawyer, but here's, here's my perspective. Yeah. And then you go, cool. And then you might even say, is there anything else I should think of? Now, these aren't replacements for the humans that do these jobs today. They're not replacements for lawyers, for accountants, for, you know, all the other professions there, you know, I would definitely wouldn't, wouldn't be using it for, as, as your kind of medical advice or no. stuff. But it's it's a step to say, you know, it, you know, what should I be thinking about? Um, and certainly, you know, going back to startup founders you know it's a good way to test things out because you know sometimes yeah. it goes have you thought about or have you have you heard of and you go oh no i hadn't mm. a friend of mine who is returning back to the workforce after 15 years she's been raising children um was using it to train herself in interviews so she'd be like i'm going for a job as a so-and-so can you set me up with a with a you know pretend interview and then it would coach her through you know perhaps you should say this instead or um, and really handy. Like, again, not something that I would think of, but it's got all the access to the information out there. So so why not take advantage of that? Um, where are the traps and the pitfalls um, in rushing to this stuff? So I think um, uh, another key aspect of generative AI is the tools that you're – you have to be wary of um, a few things there. So I've already talked uh, about the – you know, hallucination effect and to be wary that, you know, sometimes these uh, generative AI models will make things up. So mm. you need to be explicit and um, the tighter your questions are, the less likely it's going to be make it up. If you if you get, ask a really open question, it, it, it can go broad. If you ask it tightly and say, make sure it's, you know, I, I literally will write the phrase, don't make things up. Yeah. It must be factual. If you don't know something, ask me. Ask yeah, me. right. I, I, can, <laughs> I, I, I write a little in the prompt, if you don't know something, ask me That's and I, I'll, I'll clarify something will help you find it for you. So I, I, I mean, I teach it as I, I talk to the AI as if I'm talking to a person. Yeah. Um, I even say please and thank you, um, which apparently just force of habit, right? Force of <laughs> habit. But if the other things to think about too, uh, I, I suppose two key aspects I'd call out would be um, uh, I've talked about biases already in, in models, but also um, ethical concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that um, anything you use generative AI models for. You do so in a way that considers the appropriate ethics of of using them. So, what's the you know are you um, are you doing this in a way that um, is um, uh, taking advantage of other people's work, for example? Yeah. Um, and just making sure that you're you're appropriately um, attributing any work you might be doing using uh, AI generative AI models. Um, the the other one to consider also is also how um, uh, when looking at uh, generative AI content, um, need to consider the, I suppose, who the end users are and how they're likely to use it. So it needs to be fit for them. Mm. So um, it's it's quite easy to write content in particular, whether it's words or text, for which, which, which doesn't sound like you. It's quite easy to go and say writer, whatever, and people just go, people know straight away. I get... Uh, I've uh, been on the end of some job applications quite recently where people have said, hey, I want to come and work with you. And it's so clear that they've just banged it into ChatGPT. I'm like, you can actually ask ChatGPT to write you something in the style of someone. Yeah, so these people haven't even done that, which is hilarious. And I'm just like, 
geez, you could have just done that extra step. So it's not that hard to go that extra step and put the effort into it. And in fact, I would even suggest, you know, using some of these tools are great, but put your own touch to it. Yeah. That's where the value comes from. Be, make it human. You know, you are, the, the human element is is the bit that, that puts the bow on the top. The, mm. the, you know, if you're just are sending out content, which is purely generated content, then you're just missing the opportunity. You're, yeah. You're, you're just one of, you're, 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 that's a commodity. Um, be be the, the extra on top. Yeah. Are there tools around yet to work out whether something has been generated by AI? Like I'm, I'm picturing myself, I spent 10 years lecturing at university and I'm imagining that 90% of assignments now that are being submitted are going to have a good count of GPT stuff in it. Can, can you check that? Can you check that something's been um, generated? There's some. Uh, so, and I think there's a bit of an arms race to, to catch up. So, you know, in, you know, the, the tool I see used the most in universities here in Australia, Turnitin is, you know, playing catch up on in that area. Mm. Um, what I'm seeing, you know, I have uh, three children all in kind of a mixture of high school and uh, primary school and certainly in, in the high school mode. Um, they've actually changed the way they do assessments now. And so rather than um, doing... Uh, their key learning tasks, their KLTs, is something they might have previously done, uh, you know, at home. Mm. They now do it in class. Yeah, right. And so basically, it, it, it's the, it's, it, it causes the, it means that, yeah, the work you can, the brains are there working, and there's no kind of whether there's like a, I don't know if the school physically blocks ChatGPT or it's literally just line of sight because of the teacher being there. Mm. But regardless, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very clear message. And in fact, the way that my children have spoken to me, it's, hey, that's so we can't use ChatGPT. Now, um, I find it interesting, inter- interesting in the sense that, you know, my oldest child, um, you know, speaking to him the other day, I said, "Look, ChatGPT isn't bad. It's a, you know, it's 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 like a calculator. Yeah. Um, if you know how to do, if you know how the, you got to the point where now you can use your calculator, that's fine. You know first principles. Mm. So you know my yeah my original first undergraduate degree was engineering. So I'm all about getting things right and understanding things from first principles. So I think." Uh, people who are now studying and learning um, need to understand how things uh, developed from a first principles perspective. Mm. And same goes for, you know, using these AI tools. Um, uh, the second one is on images. Yep. So they're already talking about putting in kind of digital watermarks into images uh. that, that will start saying, oh, this is a AI-generated whatever photograph or things things where it's, you know, you go, okay, that one's done whatever. So there's some talk about that. I think that'll be harder with text but... Um, see how it goes i do like i always like to tinker in my mind with the concept like what you were talking about you know knowing first principles and i use the example um i did a computer science degree my early 20s um i was always into music i went back and did a music degree in my mid-20s and i was brought into wanting to create i was never a good player of music i was never disciplined enough to learn an instrument i was really never disciplined enough to learn first principles right um, and then in the mid nineties, you know, computer software came out that you could generate music with. And for me, that was like the, the, the moment for me, because not only was I not really good at learning and retaining information, um, but I wasn't really inspired to want to play, but I wanted to make music. I wanted to perform. I wanted to do that sort of stuff. And then when I found software that could help me do this, um, that was something that gave me a set of tools that I wasn't already prepared with. But the backside of that is when you're studying music with a bunch of people that have spent 10 and 15 years practicing and playing, it's like, well, you're not a real musician because you don't know how to play and you don't know how to read music. And so then there becomes this old school, new school thought of, um, 
if you don't know first principles in detail, then you don't have the right to actually jump in to, you know, the second level. Is AI going to be the thing where people go, well, actually now it's, it's not about the knowledge that I retain. It's not about how much stuff I can remember. It's about what I've got access to. Yeah, so it's, um, uh, it's really I, I find the creative side of AI incredibly um, interesting. And, mm. um, uh, you know, I was, Google just released something the other day and it was um, it's a basically a text-based kind of um, AI generation tool and they were demonstrating one of the use cases they were demonstrating was how it could help kind of uh, build out a rap. Yeah, right. And they actually used a I can't remember which musician it was who was involved in doing it. And that, that was it. There was a Jay Z one. Was it Jay Z? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay Z. Yeah. Where go, it yeah. sounds like Jay Z. <laughs> like you yeah. would not know. And, and it's really interesting because it was, but they actually had an artist. In, the key was they had an artist involved, mm. and so it was almost like showing how the artist would pick it up and then do the next thing. So it was almost like get the concepts, get the ideas right, then build on it. And so, yeah, I still think there's this element of building to 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 to. To make it something, mm. and um, and you know, generative AI helps you collaborate, build it out. So I'm, I mean, I, I think technology has brought us, you know, putting aside AI, technology has brought the music industry leaps and bounds um, in in all different kinds. In the of way, way people consume music, in the way people connect with music, yeah. particularly like the thing that I've always loved is the way that it allows you to connect with the artist. Yeah, you can never. Like tell the artist that you like them. You could never, you know, with social media, the way that you can connect with an audience. Um, but then let's look at like the stuff that's going on at Hollywood at the moment. Right? We've got writers on strike and um, people worried about preserving their likeness, you know, with things like we've seen with this Jay-Z um, clip. We've got, you know, Donald Trump videos that aren't real. We've got Joe Biden videos that aren't real. We've got famous celebrities. Um what does that look like? Yeah, you know what. what are and so there's, so I reckon there's a few different issues there to tackle. So I'd say for those who are already known for content, you know, for their for their words, for their voice, for their image, mm. you know, still or physical moving, um, you know, I, I think preferences should be, um, uh, you know, people's preferences should be respected mm. le legally. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, if people want to uh, and want to own their image. In, in the ways that they own their images today in, in real life, then they should have the ability to own them legally in AI. Yeah. So that, you know, so that, you know, uh, in the same way that if someone's track gets mixed up, yeah, sorry, mixed up, probably the wrong word for it, but, you know, uh, incorporate. It's like having a passport, right? Uh, like, but if you incorporate, say, someone else's music into mm. your sorry, sample, there you go, there's a word for it. Yeah, yeah, sample. <laughs> sample, that's, that's yeah. it. Like, if you sample someone's track into your own music, yeah. then, you know, generally you have to pay a royalty. Correct. So, you know, with AI, I, that whole debate has not happened. So, if you're, regardless of how the how people's words, images, whatever likenesses has come into play, mm. that has to be respected. Now, I, I expect a whole lot of artists artists will want to um, uh, monetize that. Hundred percent. They'll be like, you know, geez. I mean, you already look at it. You can see it in Hollywood now. Well, where James Earl Jones. So I'm a Star Wars fan, yeah. and James Earl Jones signed over his voice to be Darth Vader forever. forever. Yeah. So I the, mean, he, the latest Indiana Jones. There's there's um, Harrison Ford looking as young as ever. Yeah, de aging. And, yeah, and then yeah, de aging. Same goes for Carrie Fisher, who's you know, bless yeah. her soul was passed, passed away, away, but is is still there in in, in uh, movies, which is just 
you know, from a fan point of view, is great. And um, you know, I just hope that and want to make sure that these people are getting or their estates are getting um, yeah. recom- uh, you know, paid for it. For the, those starting out, though, what this means is well, what happens? What has you know? So I, I get the the um, you know writers and and actors who are saying, well, hang on, we're just new to this. Are we going to be replaced? Mm. And what I would hope to see is that you know this is that AI is not a is not a job killer for those creatives. I want to you know I'd love to be able to see that there's the opportunity for them to level up. And, yeah. and you know, um, and to be able to use their skills in a way that that harnesses the technology that doesn't kind of rid them, because I, I still believe there's there's a fundamental role that humans play in being creative. Um, I, yeah, for sure. And and I think even like defining the difference between human creative work and AI creative work, like there's space for both, because there's some stuff that that computers are going to come up with that no human would have ever imagined. But then, are they ever going to be really able to capture the emotion and the experience and and you know art is about life it's about life experience if you're not lived life well it's a different type of art but not to say there's not a place for it it was when i first started making electronic music everyone was like like electronic music that's cheating that's computers making music well there's still a person behind it the computer's the tool so i think using ai as a tool um is really what we're talking about right it's it's not going to replace anyone but if everyone can enhance Based on access to that tool, I wonder if people, the uh, the singers, uh, complained when the first musical instruments claim, uh, came about. You know, it's kind of like the every advent of new technology leads to detractors. Yeah, you know, it's like the I'm sure when you know it went from horses to cars. You know, all the people who rode horses like cars. They're terrible. We hate cars. Yeah, now it's bad for the environment. No one's ever going to take yeah, them up. And now it's yeah. cars to you know petrol cars to electric cars. Oh, yeah. and there's the whatever. There's always the you know, every new technology will generally have detractors, but you know, you know, um, generally these things will have. You know, if they if they've got value, they'll have some kind of. You know, they'll they'll seek a, a happy medium where they get the right balance between the, delivering that value. Obviously, you know, there's some kind of commercial model, but also delivering the right, doing it in a, in the right ethical way, in the right within the right boundaries. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, what I'm seeing there from a societal point of view but also in a governmental point of view that there's there's a real um, uh, interest in getting all those settings right. And so especially in Australia I see that, you know, it's kind of very early step to say, right, what are the kind of things we need to think about? What are the things, you know, how do we make sure that these, that, you know, know, Skynet doesn't occur, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, (laughs) and that was sort of going to be my next question. I'll I'll make that question too because there's one to fit in between. Um, What role does enterprise have in what's happening with AI and and when does government or governance need to step in and, and be involved? Because it's obviously like private equity doesn't care, right? They just want to generate revenue. So they're going to run with it as fast as they can. Um, what needs to happen to make sure this is happening both ethically um, but that we don't end up with a Skynet? Mm. So there's already been one case where a large organisation, and I've literally the, the name of that organisation has slipped my uh, mind at the moment. Uh, if only I had a little AI here to tell we'll me. Put it in the comments. Put it in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what they had was early on, they had some of their, I think it was their software engineers, might have uploaded some proprietary code to say ChatGPT and and did other stuff. And so effectively, they were publishing it out and um, uh, and allowing it to be shared and and you know, allowed the you know, one of these generative AI models to learn from it. Mm. Now that's not a that's not a great case because a great thing because effectively 
put AI aside again. This is you're effectively pushing you know, proprietary information outside of an enterprise firewall, and you're giving it you know, effectively giving mm. it away to, for others to see. And so um, that's just not on. And so um, what I'm seeing is large organisations, enterprises, both in Australia and overseas. Uh, are seeing uh, uh, generative AI as a great opportunity to do work, but they're doing it within their own four walls or doing it within a managed environment. So uh, they're using these large language models mm. and they're doing it in a way that, that they put a, a kind of a, a safe around it, but they're tr- doing things which are low risk. Yeah. So a great example is ANZ. They just launched a, a, a new service internally called ZGPT. Ah. And it's basically their own version of ChatGPT, but it's all trained on basically kind of information which is kind of helps them understand, you know, help and other local kind of information. So they deliberately haven't gone into financial transactions, mm. personal information or anything. They've kept, kept they've touched the edge. And they're, they're doing this as a way of learning and understanding the technology and to make sure that they do it in a way that to, through testing and learning that they put the right governance and controls around that. Mm. And that'll be something that the majority of organisations will need to do to make sure that things are controlled. And... I would actually um, provide advice to regardless of whether you're you know, the top end of town or even you're in a small business, you have information which is proprietary to your business mm. and you want to make sure that the way that you're using it with any of these tools um, is kept secret to you. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just need to, you know, w- even if you are, say, using ChatGPT, there's little settings where you can go, you know, don't use my data for training. You little, a little go to settings and just go, you know, delete my data after 30 days, don't share it. Right. So um, – and just some basic stuff. Yeah. Um, by default, that's um, – not on. It's not on. So you've <laughs> yeah, got to turn it off. So uh, some of that stuff. Now, um, over time, more and more solutions will come where you can basically keep your data local to your even your own – whether it's your own personal machine or your own enterprise machine so that it's not even going up into the cloud. Um, whether things are in the cloud or not, I think is – um, it's just a security question. Yeah. It's up to each kind of organisation to establish the rules there. Um, uh, I think the cloud is kind of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I suppose established enough and understood enough by enterprises. But um, but certainly people need to understand and use common sense and um, good governance around data mm-hmm. and what they share with these, um, uh, these generative AI models. Does the government have a role in this? Does the th- government need to get involved? I think governments absolutely need to play a role in um, good practices for um, generative AI or in just I would say AI in general mm-hmm. and the kind of things I would expect governments to do, not just locally here but across um, the world, um, are, are things to put in good frameworks around ethics, good management of data and, and just ensuring that not knowing how, um, you know, the, the, there's some who are predicting that, you know, that AI is likely to become sentient within the next decade or two. Mm. Now, um, I can't give you my own view on that because I, I don't have – I'm not close enough to the to the different models that all these uh, organisations are developing that I can say that that's right or wrong. Mm. Um, but if that's the case, then that's something where you want to go, um, okay, well, if that's the case, if, if there is going to be if, – if these uh, models are going to be able to think for themselves uh, and go beyond just kind of – you know, human requiring to ask questions and come back, um, then then what? What yeah. are, what controls need to be in place and what what things do we need to put in place so we don't have a – obviously everyone thinks of Terminator, but whatever it is, you know, it, and, and it could be, you know, let's make it really boring. 
let's make a much more boring thing. Um, what if uh, there was, you know, that, that, that there was a financial institution that was using some kind of AI capability to, I don't know, work out the um, the best way of uh, managing know, interest payments or mm. uh, for home loan accounts or savings accounts or whatever. And what if it started getting it monitored and started doing things in a way that did, um, you know, decide to go, oh, you know what, I'm going to start... Making some cash. Making some cash side. or doing <laughs> something else. I'm going to fund some more CPU and replicate yeah. myself somewhere else. Or, you know, basically what if it went, you know, went off program. Effectively, yeah. you know, decided, decided to, you know, develop its own, um, you know, personality and did its own thing. Now, I think uh, that doesn't exist today. Mm. That's not a real life thing. Um, anyone who suggests it does is, is telling fibs. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, uh, you know, it's something to from a policy point of view at a government level to think about and um, uh, and that's just one of the issues from a government point of view. I think ethics, bias, um, proper use, all those kind of things are really important uh, aspects that governments need to think about because uh, just leaving them to industry alone will get a mixture of responses and mm. like, like you said, some people will just go for profit. Yeah. So it's about saying, right, how do we create a place where we say, okay, this is our base level of... Um, of uh, expectation when it comes to doing this kind of work. Because who's the boss of OpenAI? What's his name? Sam Altman. Sam Altman. And he carries around a blue backpack now, which apparently has a detonator for all of the primary OpenAI servers. So if something was to go wrong, he pulls out the button and, and kills all the servers. I have never heard that story. Yeah. it's it's a, Well, whether or not it's an internet, <laughs> an internet meme or not, but, yeah, anywhere Sam Harris goes, uh, Sam Altman goes, he's got uh, a blue backpack and in that blue backpack is the button. That um, that kills all the servers. I met him recently. In oh Melbourne. wow! Really? He did not have a blue backpack on. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to have off. to. I'm, I'm going to have to check this out. Could just be an internet meme, gonna, but I'm, it's it's we, a thing. We're going to we'll put that in the comments too. There you go. Mm. Does the blue backpack exist? But you know what? Um, having a um, I suppose it's better than having you know, serotonin and come back yeah. come back after you. I suppose you know then. And and that's you know that's one that I want to spend a couple of minutes on, right? So everyone's guessing what's going to happen. Human nature is to assume the worst, right? So it's Terminator, it's Skynet, it's... I think the, the thing that, that drives people's fear in that is the rate at which if something, if an AI became sentient, the rate at which it could make decisions is the thing that's really scary, right? Because by the time we've thought up an evil plan and put it into place and, and hatched it as a human, you know, an AI has done that and, and, it, and it's over. Um, but there's two futures, right? So there's Terminator, future and Skynet and AI um, and then there's like the Star Trek future and the Star Wars future where we've got AIs helping us out, living our lives alongside us um, or the Matrix, you know, where it all goes haywire and and, and they fight back. Um, let's guess, like what do, what, do you, what do you think will happen and it's a guess? Um, I think more, it's going to be more of an Iron Man universe where it's like the which bit of good and bad. Yeah, so it's very much the you know, Jarvis is there, but you know it's it's going to be a bit of turmoil and. Uh, but does AI does AI think what do I need these people for now? Like, what's the what do I need these bags of meat around for? If they're thinking like if an AI is thinking, well, let me have a look back now that I'm intelligent and see what these people have done with this planet and to each other over the past you know ten thousand years. They really worth keeping around, you know. Is it's we've trained this AI to to you know be like us. Oh, so I was always a fan of um, Asimov growing up. Growing up, so I read all of his um, 
uh, books, including iRobot, which established all the the fundamental rules of robotics, which basically, you know, effectively is do no harm to humans. Yeah. And um, it's uh, uh, recently I just watched the um, the Megan movie, which is about the. Um, oh, I have not seen. Uh, that. So this is about a you know a doll who's been you know built out of uh, you know a big kind of toy manufacturer and basically has AI capabilities, a bit of learning mode. It's been trained to, you know, join up to a, a child and then pair with a child and then basically be effectively be obedient to that child. Mm. And um, in this case, you know, um, spoiler alert for someone who hasn't, no one's who's seen Megan yet, but um, the this this doll um, ends up um, going to such an extent to protect this child that starts basically... Um, know um, harming other humans yeah, right. uh, to protect this child yeah when these humans aren't weren't gonna kill this child they were just bullying or doing other stuff but yeah. it's, 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 it's just acting it's, on its programming well I'll, so I would say hang on acting on programming why is it killing a human so in this, a couple of occasions it there's some there's, there's, there's oh, it actually kills actually kills, right. kills, <laughs> right. it kills so, so the this, this the child is paired with gets bullied mm-hmm. uh, on a on a camp or something occasion and so um, basically takes out the other child by pushing him down a hill and kid, the kid gets run over by a car and that kind of stuff and I'm just like well hang on and so I'm like that's kind of going a bit too far and if I was that actual AI model I'd be going well hang on consequences consequences wouldn't you think that you'd eventually get done for that like and, mm. and you know um, I'll let I won't explain the rest of the media for me because I'm sure people there'll be some people who haven't seen it but it's worth watching because it's kind of. I mean, I think there's a few plot plot, plot holes in that, but um, um, I think that's a, a great example of a dumb AI because it's that AI which apparently is really great at learning just didn't see mm. didn't see the end coming, didn't see where where it finally ended, and I'm just like, so um, I suppose um, uh, any AI, AI who thinks that they can dominate in, on their own existence, you kind of go, well, how? What's mm. there? You know, and, you know, I know The Matrix tells us this kind of fantasy world of, well, they ended up working out that they could live off the energy of our of our kind of our heat of our bodies getting giving birth and going down yeah. tubes and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it's I kind of I think we're a long, long way off that kind of yeah. thing happening. Um, but we're probably nearer to seeing technology being used for more, well... I'd say things which are more around, I don't know, social engineering and other stuff, using this technology where perhaps in the past where someone, you would have been really easy to spot someone trying to um, text you, email you and convince you to hand over cash. Mm. Suddenly all these tools allow people, that those human cyber criminals, yep. to communicate in a way that they're suddenly, they've got perfect English yeah, that's a good and so, point. And so, and so, so don't don't be fearful of killer robots. Be fearful of evil people, psychotic people, leveraging evil people using the tools. Because that's the. I mean, and you know, I, I would I would start at going. Let's solve those problems first. Yeah. That's the immediate problem is you know people running using these tools inappropriately, mm. um, and uh, and then going to the yeah yes yes absolutely consider you know, sentiments and what that means and how to how to combat comp. I say the word combat, but at least understand and best manage, um, and then uh, and remain. You know, have the, have the kill switch or have the control switch, um, but then consider that people are actually there's there's lots of 
people with um, ill intent. Oh, yeah, definitely. They will use things in a bad way. So I'd be considering, you know, know, the ethics of humans Mm. is paramount and that's the real concern today. (laughs) Yeah. And particularly because, again, we're like, you know, the biblical stories, God created us in in his own image. Well, that's what we're doing with AI, right? And and at times our image isn't all that wonderful. Um, So then what will come will be... AI of some description and, you know, the, the singularity perhaps. But in between, I guess I'm thinking that there's there's probably another step, particularly when we look at things like the emergence of autonomous robots and, and those sorts of things. More and more we see that, um, particularly in warehousing and logistics and things of that nature. Um, you know, Elon's working on, what's his? Yeah, it's like the, is it a, 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 not Atlas's, Atlas? No. Uh I know the one you're talking about. Can't remember. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but, you know, it, it seems like when he puts his mind to something, it, it, we're going to end up with something. Um, so is that something that we should be prepped for? You know, like the the Autobot walking around the home. It's um, oh, Who was I speaking to? I was speaking to Peter Gray um, a few weeks ago and, and he was highlighting that we are now at the time that the Jetsons was set in. And so Rosie, you know, the, the old robot that would, uh, that would take care of the house, like we're, we're pretty close to that, right? Like we should start seeing um, some of that stuff in the next decade or so. Well, how much of our lives is automated today? Yeah. So there's um, – you, you can now buy a equivalent of that, you know, those kind of automated vacuums. You can buy a vacuum house. You can now buy that for your lawn. Yeah. They're expensive. They're $15,000. I think we were talking about this. I drive past one on the way home from work, <laughs> just plodding along the front of the house. So I'm just like, I mean, that is a real kind of, that's a like a, you know, I've got the latest technology and yeah. you haven't or maybe they all have in whatever suburb. But it's that kind of, so automation might not look like physically shaped people, but it's absolutely there. There's, there's you know, um, robots who serve people in restaurants. Yeah. Um, you think about it. We we go through our, our checkouts now at the major uh, supermarket chains, and there's all this technology which surrounds us as we go through. Mm. Um, right now in Coles and Woolworths, you happen to do it yourself. In the states, in the states, you just walk out. You walk out. It's yep. like Amazon Go. It, it basically through its own technology, you basically put all yourself into baskets, whatever. Walk straight out, and it goes. Yep, there's Josh Rowe. Tag, ting, bang, charge, you're out, gone. There's no, there's not even a cash register. Yeah. Like you're just, it just, you're out. You don't yeah. have to, there's no, there's just no notion of having to physically take things in and out. Um, you just walk out. So um, so I think this notion of automation of technology and capability is just coming along and, um, you know, the fact that there's, I mean, in, in my house we have, uh, you know, um, Two, two kind of home assistant devices. We have a, a HomePod, Apple's, you know, so basically Siri, yep. which is not terribly smart. It's kind of good for playing music, basically. And then yeah, we have not the best, not the best AI out no, there. No, and then Google Assistant, which you know we find quite good for yeah working things out and asking questions. Still not the great, the best, but it's kind of um, it's reasonable. And mm. so um, people are doing more and more around this technology, particularly linking at home and at work to to using things. So, so it could be you know turning on the lights. It could be hey you know um, preparing things for when you arrive home or when you leave. You know make it so that when I get home the home is all at a certain temperature. So mm. I mean you know this is we're talking about the, well, this, this is the stuff that this, we this, do. This is your business. Yeah, <laughs> so, correct. This is the so this is the you know oh, I think about 
all the years that you guys have been around and where things have gone from from being very much physical touch to whether it's voice and it's the software, you know, being you know not just about hardware but but being hardware software. Yeah. So it's that yeah you know, it's that move movement from being you know um, you know just uh, working on you know uh, a hard push. And a you know direct there's a electrical yeah, current, voltage, a yeah, voltage direct. a current going through a wire mm. to now being the software there's embedded software everywhere and I had this amazing revelation the other day I I ran up uh, a little Raspberry Pi at home running this little system called Home Assistant I use Home Assistant amazing <laughs> and so I was just gobsmacked at how many different devices lit up yeah like I literally like I knew about a whole bunch of stuff and the reason why I ran this was because I wanted to just see how things like my yeah, my solar system, my Tesla Powerwall and my EVs were just charging and just I wanted to see my energy usage. Yeah. What I didn't realise was the amount of devices that this thing picked up. My toothbrush, yep. all my home assistant devices, my NAS, my, my dishwasher, all, every, every yep. single device and it just found them and was the the, the ease which they were, it could connect to them. Like I didn't have to provide credentials mm. but I'm like this is amazing and I thought – I. First thought, good, exciting, and my initial response was connect to them all. Then I've gone, hang on, do I really need to be connected to my toothbrush? No, I don't. No. <laughs> and so I restarted the whole thing. I said, right, I'm just here for energy. But yeah. I thought, but I also thought, well, hang on, there's real opportunities here for controlling and managing stuff. And uh, a good friend of mine, a technology journalist, a gentleman by the name of Paul Woolback, said to me many, probably a decade ago now, I remember him saying to me, all these uh, Internet of Things devices – because he asked back then, he's like, I wonder how many of them have thought about the security that's around them and, you know, like what's going to happen? How many of them have literally just got the password admin and a, yeah. no, a known password? Cause it's On like, your security cameras and all that sort of all stuff. All that stuff because what's going to happen, you know, with, you know, with you know, can people just drive down the street and access your own personal data and do things and whatever? I'm just like, and this is obviously beyond just AI I'm talking about, but it's home automation. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, yeah. And it's like, you know, that stuff that, you know, Paul said to me all the way back then, I'm just like, yeah, that's that that became so apparent to me that, that you know, it's um, the ability to get inside and access yeah. systems. You almost need a DMZ around your home. Well, <laughs> I used to play a video game called Watch Dogs and Watch Dogs, was, it's like a hacker culture game and, and you – are fighting back against this thing called CTOS, which is City, C-T-O-S. So it's the operating system that runs the city. And you're hacking traffic lights and you're hacking security cameras and you're getting in through, you know, buildings and opening doors. So the more that this stuff becomes centralised and governed that way, then, yeah, the software becomes a risk. Um, to your To your point earlier, our industry in particular is at this really interesting point now where for so many years we were based on hardware, and then there was firmware, you know, doing small little things and now software creeps in and software becomes a thing to the point now where we see less and less hardware and software is becoming the experiential tool um, for businesses that are looking to make moves into software strategy and understanding software as a whole. Um, what do you need to do in a business to reframe what that looks like? If you've been built on being a hardware centric for so long, um, how does a business make a decision to pivot and, and what things need to be considered? So the when I think about businesses which have made the most dramatic effect from being going from hardware to being software, I think of um, I think of this company. Yeah. So yeah, if you think about it, before the iPhone came along, you you really had to rely on, you know, uh, things like think about the competitors back then. Like the Black, Blackberry. Blackberry yeah. and other devices which had 
physical keypads and other things around it and, yeah, they had a lifespan. Mm. This here um, is completely programmable. Yeah. And so over, you know, it's it's all software. Like there's no, like there's very few actual physical things to touch and change. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, a piece of glass with some stuff inside. It is yeah. software. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, it's you, you bought a screen mm. and so everything that sits around it is completely upgradable, changeable all the time. So I think, um, yeah, the more and more, you know, I personally buy any devices in my home environment, I generally look for things which have as little as possible of the you know, hardware integrated devices and as much as possible in software. Yeah. Um, so you know that it can adapt with you and, and upgrade over time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes you need to have some onboard hardware bits and pieces because it just makes sense to have it on board rather than up somewhere else in the cloud or wherever else. So that's fine. But it's, um, it's you know, so, so I suppose, you know, back to your question, Mike, the, um, you know, when I think about what this means for businesses who are, who've traditionally been in the hardware game, they need to adapt. Mm. And um, I'll give you a real example. Um, I was in Kmart the other day. I noticed they're selling uh, scales. They've got regular scales, which are just like analog dial, the next one, digital scales, and then the third one, and it's a scale where it's just a full kind of body mass index and everything on it. And they've got, oh, and we sell an app with that. And there's an app with that. Mm. And I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? And that's, this is their home brand, Enco. Yeah. I'm just like, isn't this great? Now, who knows whether they've just white-labeled some of the app or whatever else done, but I'm like, the people that came out are super smart there because they've basically gone, we recognise that this requires not just a – this is not a piece of technology that goes out the door by itself. Mm. Oh, sorry, 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 a part where it goes out. It needs technology to run with it. Yep. We're doing that too. We'll do the technology play. Now, whether they play that onto a broader ecosystem play, who knows? Um, they might have just made it. But it is, it is retention and stickiness, right? That's the other thing about hardware is, um, is because a box runs out. The software doesn't. You know, the software, there's a new update or there's a new release or there's this new feature that we can stack on it for you. You can't add a new feature to a piece of hardware without it being really hard. Um, even the concept of, you know, update, upgrading a PC back in the day. Um, to your point, well, now we've got CPUs that we're going to outlast the software that's running on them by three or four generations. So you can hang on to that thing. Um, and I love the way, to your point, um, that Apple have really become a software company. Um, I remember using OS like, you know, six, seven and eight before anything really good was happening. And then OS 10 came and you sort of like, these guys are doing something really different with this operating system because Apple didn't care. They were a hardware manufacturer and the software was there. Um, but now it's the thing that drives and, them. And, and I think the other key thing I saw um, was that, and I think probably maybe it was around uh, iOS 10 too, but the, the difference in being you've got to be connected to a you know, physical computer to, to keep things backed up to, to now, we, now we're in the cloud. Mm. And so I can literally just, I can smash my, my iPhone, I can throw it in the bin, I can just walk into an Apple store and go, brand new phone, Signing with my iTunes, yeah, not my iTunes, what's it called now, iCloud account. Yep. Um, and and, and then... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it just slurps up all the data, and then it's, it's like my phone was always there. That, mm. that, that's my exact phone. Yeah, every single single setting is there. Like it's, you know, it's your digital twin, right? It's 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 you on standby. <laughs> I, I get more worried. I once left my iPhone in a taxi. I get more worried losing my iPhone, about losing my phone, than I would losing my wallet. Well, I don't even carry a wallet yeah, anymore yeah, yeah. with with anything like important in it because it's it's only one or two cards that haven't yet caught up to Apple yeah. Pay or whatever. But everything else is like once we get digital identity and thing, yeah. that's that's going to be the only device that you've got, which then comes with its own risks. You know, um, what was that question going to be? 
I was going to ask something then and I forgot completely all about it. No, that slipped my mind. Um, tell me about what's happening in your world in the in in the short term ahead. Um, are you looking more into what's going on with the emergence of AI? Is it about you know business and practice and, and incorporating into that? You know what is what is your really hot button for the next little while? Yeah, so I'm I'm really looking at practical uses of AI. Uh, in kind of medium and large size businesses, and 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 how it can you know affect real change and real opportunities right now. So mm-hmm. it's about saying right whether it's the first steps an organisation might take, or whether it's you know they've already done some work and they want to take the next step. And so it's saying okay, um, how can we use this, and what are the practical ways that we can use this? Um, sometimes that's literally around you know working out the right policies around that. Sometimes it's actually taking and getting you know doing a test and learn piece of work where you go right, let's just let's experiment with it, let's see mm. what it looks like, and actually try something out, whether it's internally facing or externally facing. But it's um it's 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 exploring it and understanding it. So there's certainly a lot of a fair bit of education that I'm I'm doing and um, with with. Uh, different people I'm working with out there in different enterprises, uh, but also actual practical work. We're actually, actually delivering real outcomes where people can actually use the technology um, to actually deliver something that's valuable. Mm. If you were a betting man and someone said, how long until we see a true AI, what would you be anticipating? I'm not going to hold you to it. Yeah, so, so I... Um, uh, um, I would say that we actually have AI today, um, and AI will continue to, um, you know, get better and better, mm. you know, over time, and it will deal with different issues along the way. So, um, you know, there's already businesses which are doing very well and and delivering great outcomes using AI, mm. and and have been for many years. Um, you know, previously it was you know AI being used very mathematically. Yeah. So behind the scenes, there was all these different things that just no one ever saw them. No one got to use a consumer-grade version of AI and particularly generative AI. So it was like, you know, so it was mostly kind of enterprise-grade versions of machine learning and AI that happened behind the scenes. So no one, you know, we never, it never went out and, you know, so say Relays, for example, we never went out and then said, hey, we're all about AI because yeah. it was just like no one knew what AI meant. So it's yeah. just like whatever, we use the word algorithm and, you know, it was more focused on the value it delivered. Mm-hmm. And so uh, AI is, is definitely not new and definitely not something um, or sorry, definitely is something that's delivering um, quantifiable value to consumers, enterprises, a whole lot. Um, over time, we'll keep on seeing it getting better and better at doing tasks and and things that that humans and others uh, have more potentially, you know, maybe were manual or harder to do. And it'll actually allow people to move up the value mm. the value chain. And by that, I mean, you know, it makes people work on you know, become knowledge workers. So you go, right, on that stuff that might have taken me a whole lot of effort to craft, I can move up. Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the people in my my team who's a product manager, she's, um, you know, um, you know, rather than, you know, say crafting out user stories, user personas, you know, um, things for an engineering squad, you know, what I say to her is I say, right, use ChatGPT to do that because you know, you know gener- generally what them what you want, mm. but you get it to draft all the words and you'd be the quality checker. That way you kind of, you've got a little, effectively you, you've got a, an associate working for you yeah. to get out a whole lot of content, yeah. get it in there and go. And so, and she's like, oh, this is awesome. And she's just like, 
this is great. So like I've got I've got my assistant now. And I go, yeah, of course you have. Mm. Use, use it as your assistant, but use it in the domains where you understand it. Yeah. Like don't don't go and say, can you explain to, to me something to explain to the CEO where you're not sure about the content, whether it's right or not. Explain it at the you – know, do bits where you can check it. Mm. Um, if you go outside of your field of expertise, you don't know if it's right. So – and maybe, going back to your question, the, the perfect AI or the great AI is the one that is, – is the self-learning, the self-checking. It's yeah. the one that goes, did I get it right? Mm. It's the one that goes, am I checking things? Have I considered perspectives? Um, you know, whatever. And if anything – Perhaps some of the the AIs and well, I suppose the personas that might come out from AIs might exp- even express different opinions. Mm. Do we ever see true sentience? Do we ever see a, an artificial intelligence that is conscious? I, I think sentience will arrive. Um, you know, there will be you know a, 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 you know artificial intelligence which will will get to a stage where, um, and I believe it will be within my lifetime. Uh, some people suggested within the next. You know, ten to twenty years. Yeah, well, the twenty thirty seem to be where everyone's landing, going. Yeah, It'll yeah. be sort of twenty thirty five or thereabouts. Um, Toby, so Toby Walsh has written a whole book on this, so it's a um, really good read on that. Um, and he talks about a lot about that kind of future state. And um, you know, it's it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, so it's kind of. Um, I, I don't know enough about the underlying technology to go. Yes, I can pin it at mm. a certain decade. But um, but I can definitely tell you now it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> so I know, of, I know it's not there. I know it's not there. But um, yeah, whether there's uh, you know uh, yeah, there's always more work being done at an academic level and a research level that might be you know certainly further ahead than where we are. Mm. Either way, when it arrives, it's going to be uh, it's going to be the biggest thing I think we've ever seen, right? In the, in the history of anything that we've ever done, um, it's really about what happens after that. So, yeah, so I, I, in my career, so um, apart from the, uh, you know, I, I literally equate the the advent of AI and generative AI equivalent to the you know the initial boom in the internet. That's the that's the quantification. That's that's the size of the change I'm seeing mm-hmm. now from a technology and kind of social change point of view. And you know, I've been through all these other different changes, whether it's the econ boom or um, other kind of key tech changes. But you know. Um, the advent of the internet and AI and generative AI are, the, in my view, the two biggest things I've seen. And I, I wouldn't say that lightly. I wouldn't just call it. Yeah. For me, I'm not, I'm not a – I don't just jump on bandwagons. Um, they're substantially, uh, you know, substantial changes. Well, if all goes wrong, it could be the last big invention <laughs> that we ever came up with as well, right? It could be, uh, could be the final one. Um, Josh, that's it. That's, uh, that's been a good – a good chat. We've got to do this again because we could probably stay here for another two hours and just keep riffing. Um, we will have some information on you in the comments uh, just for people to, to follow up if they want to uh, reach out and ask any questions or anything like that. But I think let's do it again. Um, we probably need to do it at least once a year because it's moving that quick. Um, so we'll pencil something in and we'll, um, we'll see you again soon. But thanks so much for your time. It's been great.